Uh, tonight, we're gathered here at our church. We hope that you'll come back out on midweek services and join in us. We're having a little bit of a different venue. We're going to, um, I'm going to teach for about 25 minutes, and then we're going to have a Q&A session. We're going to go offline for the Q&A session. So I will finish the message at um, 7 o'clock, and then we're going to just have some time in here to discuss with the folks what we're talking about. Now, this, I started a new series on midweek services last week, and we're talking about how God heals us in our hearts. And some people call it inner healing. Some people call it emotional healing. But we want to talk about how God touches and heals us on the inside. It's very important to understand that sometimes the physical problems that we're dealing with on the outside stem from problems that we're struggling with on the inside. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine was the psychiatrist for, this, for another state, one of our western states, and uh, he and I were talking one time, and he shocked me with what I'm about to tell you. There are some people that there is literally nothing physically wrong with them, and yet they're in constant pain. They ache continually. And yet there are other people who've had all kinds of broken bones. They've had organ damage. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with them physically, and they have nothing at all. They experience no physical pain whatsoever. And I asked him, I said, what do you think that is? Now, he is a passionate follower of Christ. Well, he's in heaven now, but he was a passionate follower of Christ. And he told me, he said, there's something about the joy of the Lord that is our strength. There's something about Psalms 100, about making a joyful noise. Because the common pattern that I've reported to the state is the people who have no pain, he said, they're joyful people. They are people of faith. They are people of gratitude. They are people that are thankful despite their circumstances. He said the people in pain, that there is nothing wrong with their bodies. He says they're always complaining. They're always grumbling. They, they have a very negative outlook on life. And so I, I began to think about that and to contemplate and to pray over that and just begin to study the word and what God had to say about our emotions, about bitterness, for instance, about heartache and broken hearts, a grieved spirit. I was praying with someone today and I told them a verse of scripture that I can literally feel when I read that verse. It's where the Lord says, I dwell with those of a broken heart and a crushed spirit. Can't you feel that? I mean, that's a powerful, powerful phrase. A broken heart and a crushed spirit. Another time, God says, a, a bruised reed, he will not break. And he's talking about a person who's been bruised and broken in life, but God will not break them. And so last week, then we're going to pray. We looked at how the Holy Spirit flows and how the Holy Spirit works in our life. And we talked about, and I don't have time to, to finish on time for our Q&A this evening, so you need to go back and listen to last week's message. The Holy Spirit always flows through the Word of God. Jesus is the Word incarnate. The Spirit of God always bears witness with the Word of the Lord. We looked at how God gave us the Bible by the Holy Spirit. The second thing we looked at is that God will always heal the painful experiences of our life. It may not be overnight. Some people have gone through long, dark valleys. The Psalms are full of, 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 of phrases that sometimes you look at that and you go, what is that doing in the Bible? And we'll deal with that tonight. 
But you need to understand, you will never understand the book of Psalms if all you're doing is reading a clip of a psalm out of a greeting card from Hallmark. You'll never understand the book of Psalms if all you do is see a bit of the psalm that I share in a sermon on a Sunday morning or a midweek service. But you need to read all 150 chapters of Psalms. You need to just go through them over and over again. There's a man in our congregation, years and years ago, I challenged him to read one chapter from the book of Proverbs a day and five chapters from the book of Psalms a day. He has kept that up for almost 20 years. And today he and I had lunch and we're sharing about how that has just changed his life. In addition to his regular Bible reading, but he has captured the very essence of what Psalms is all about. The third thing we looked at last week is that God has a remedy for the pains, for the hurts, for the disappointments that we feel in life. The Bible tells us this in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Maybe you use a translation of the Bible that says self-control, but that word really means self-discipline. And what we looked at, the topic we looked at last week was fear, and we looked at how God's love, the love of God is the very power of God. The only one of God's characteristics that he ever says, I am this. He doesn't say, I am holiness. He doesn't say, I am power. But the Bible says, God is love. And friends, you need to understand that the power of God to drive out fear is love. And we did a whole message on that last week. Had a great conversation offline about that last week as well. And so I encourage you to listen to that message. The Bible says this, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. And we talked about how God does that through love. But then we also looked at the fact that fear can expel love. I have seen fear destroy marriages because then it invites jealousy in. I have seen fear destroy churches and companies and businesses because suddenly we, get, we become afraid of each other and the love we had and the passion of the love, somehow or another the enemy is able to come in to bring in division or strife. And so let me encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. Now tonight we're going to have prayer, but we're going to talk about doubt. Because I had to keep asking everybody to wait for this week's service because everybody was wanting to ask me questions about doubt. And we're in a series here. And so let me talk to you this evening about what the Bible has to say about doubt. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you that, God, you loved us first. Let no one ever doubt that, God, you loved us. We weren't good enough to get loved. We weren't, didn't do things to deserve your love. But God, the Bible says that even while we were still your enemies, that you loved us and you sent Christ to die for us. Now, Father, as I come to you this evening, I also know that from time to time, all of us struggle with doubt. And Woodland, Lord, wants to be the kind of congregation that says to people who are struggling with doubt, you are welcomed here. We will take time and look at the word together. We will take time and process. But Lord, I pray that you're going to heal us of all of those things that cause doubts to creep in and control our hearts. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. 
And everybody said, amen, amen. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you about the offering, about your tithes and offerings. You can tithe simply by using our app, or you can give to missions on our app. You can go to woodland.church and give, or you can also text to give at our church as well. And there's information for you on the screen about that right now as I'm talking. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about a fourfold cure for doubt. God has a fourfold cure for how he wants to heal us from doubts that cause us pain and hurt inside. Let's read Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. If you're not sure, if you notice that you are acting in ways that are inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinions on others, other days just trying to please them, then you know that you're out of line. If the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. You know, I've lived long enough and I've pastored long enough. And yesterday I was talking to a, to a leader that I think is an extremely good leader. And we were talking about this very thing. And he said, if he's learned anything in leadership, he said, the people that are always trying to impose their way, they won't listen to anything else. He said, they're typically wrapped up with fear. He said they're typically struggling with self-doubts of their own. And the way they try to keep their world together is by some kind of autocratic rule or autocratic decision. He said, but the problem is that he's observed and he shared with me several examples and I have a great deal of respect for his leadership. He says, the problem is because they're so filled with self-doubt, because they're so filled with doubts about what they believe, he said there's all kinds of fractures in their life and when they collapse because of their autocratic rule, many people collapse with them. And I think that's what the apostle is getting at here. Some days people are trying to impose their opinions. And then there are other people, you know, they're just always, pardon my expression, but my hands are clean. I made sure of that. They lick their finger and they hold it up to the wind. They want to see which way the wind is going to blow because they're not interested in leading. They just simply want to find out what everybody else thinks and then get in front of that and pretend that they're the leader. They're trying to please everybody else. And I got to tell you, friend, there's not a, I can't imagine a more miserable way to live. There are basically three types of leaders. There's an autocratic leader. There is a laissez-faire leader, the one sticking their finger up in the wind. And then there's a participational style of leader. And the participational style of leader has a vision, has a, has a sense about the direction. Every father, every husband should have a sense of direction for their home. But you don't want to be an autocratic leader, but you want to bring your family in on the vacation, on the new home, how we're going to build a home. You know, I wouldn't think of building a home without saying to Becky, what do you want the kitchen to look like? What do you want the bedroom to be like? You know, I probably care more about my car than I do about the house, you know, because she lives there. It's, it's, it's a participation. But at the same time, if you've got children, you want to try and design that home around those children. It's been said, now listen, this is important. It's been said that buildings should be built, excuse me, buildings should be built around vision and vision shouldn't be forced to fit into a building. That's an important concept. So how do you do that? You bring people together rather than just trying to please everybody. But then he just drives this home. He says, but if you're not living consistent with your faith, or what you believe, then it's wrong. In other words, then it's sin. So I want to talk about this doubt that either tries to impose its opinions on others, 
or this doubt that tries to please everybody because we're not confident. Here's what I think the issue is. Doubt has trouble resolving what I see with what I believe. Doubt has trouble resolving what I see with what I believe. It's how the human heart works. When I look at a disabled child, sometimes I have trouble believing what I see with what I believe about God's healing power. I've been in this whole series on the foundations of healing. Sometimes what I see of the suffering in this world, it makes me struggle with what I believe and what I know. It's not only how the human heart works, it's how my heart works as well. And so all doubts are not bad doubts. Sometimes doubts, God allows doubts to come our way for us to work through for a greater explanation of life and a greater understanding of life. When you read the Psalms, sometimes you'll read phrases there and you go, why in the world is that in the Bible? Our son, when he was about nine years old, decided to read the Bible through. He came charging into the kitchen. I was out of town speaking somewhere. He came charging into the kitchen to his mother. She said he looked like a little preacher. He was holding his Bible and he goes, did you know this was in here? And he's pointing to a passage of scripture and she called me that night and we were laughing as we were talking about that. You know, sometimes you'll read things because what you're reading is the psalmist dealing with his feelings. You're reading very raw emotions. You're reading very raw feelings. They're, they're not just expressing their feelings. Somebody told me one time, they says, well, what you see is the psalmist venting their feelings. No, the Bible is not about venting our feelings. When I come to this pulpit, I don't come to vent my feelings. I come to preach the word of God that I've already prayed back to God in my closet. And what the psalmist is doing is praying his feelings to God. He's being honest with God about how he feels. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I was afraid to tell God what I feel. And then when my parents wisely got me some counseling, and I went through counseling, the counselor says, well, don't you think God already knows everything you're thinking anyway? I was like, light bulb, you know, it just came on. You know, God already knows what I'm thinking. Look at this in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. Underline that, pure hearts. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone, for I envied the proud when I saw them despite their wickedness. I want you to picture what the psalmist is talking about right here. He says, God is good to people whose hearts aren't pure. And by the way, if you read the whole Bible, God is good to people whose hearts are not pure as well. But something is taking place in his life. And as it takes place in his life, he pictures himself being on a rocky path. He pictures himself being on a, on a footpath. And in my travels around the world, I have climbed mountains and on just about every continent there is. And climbing those mountains, I've been fascinated to find some of the old paths that, that, that maybe the natives of that country carved. And there was a patent to those paths. We have one in the western part of the United States called uh, Mesa Verde, where there's a pattern to climbing up to the cliff dwellers. And if you miss that pattern, 
Too bad for you because there's no climbing back down. You just simply fell off the wall. A few years ago, Becky and I were rock climbing with a friend of ours, and um, he's, he's a professional rock climber. He takes people rock climbing, and, and he wanted us to climb this sheer, I mean, just as sheer as these walls that had these tiny little cracks. I could barely get the ends of my fingers in there, and I don't have big hands. And so I'm about halfway up this rock. I'm a long way up this mountain where I'm going up, and I grab hold and my fingers slip and I fell. And I got to be honest, I didn't just yell. I hollered big time. But he caught me. I was on a rope. He caught me and he belayed me. And, and uh, instead of putting me back on the rock, he lured me all the way back to the ground. He says, now start over again. Remember where you missed it. Well, you see, I was safe on that wall because somebody was holding me. I'm safe in this life because somebody is holding me. But the mistake that you can make and that I can make is when we begin to look at the wicked and we begin to envy their success. He said, my feet were slipping and I was almost gone for I envied the proud. Do you see what's happening there? He's experiencing a type of vertigo. He's experiencing his life spinning out of control. It's like when I slipped off that wall, I hollered. I mean, I yelled. It's all on camera, by the way. You'll never see it, but it's all on camera. And there I am coming down that wall, and, and then Mark lets me all the way down to the bottom and says, now start over. Remember where you slipped. The reason I slipped was because I didn't get a good grip on the wall. And so when I went to pull up, my finger just, I can remember it clearly. This finger just slipped out. I promise you, when you let envy into your heart, because maybe the wicked are prospering more than you're prospering as a follower of Jesus. Maybe it seems like the wicked have the power. Maybe it seems like the wicked has the nicer home, the nicer car. When you let envy into your heart, you have allowed a green-eyed monster to enter into your heart. And it will begin to create doubts inside of you. You see what he's doing? He's being honest. He's actually saying, God, I would have never been in danger of slipping if I hadn't have envied the, the wicked. I would have never been in danger of falling if I hadn't envied the wicked. He said, I'm angry because I'm not getting my piece of the pie. I'm angry because I'm not getting my share of the action. I'm angry and I'm doubting because, God, they seem to be getting everything that they want, but they're not serving you. So what do you take away from this? Doubts can happen to anyone. Doubts can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus Christ. If I allow doubt to enter my heart, it's going to create mental health problems. Now, I want you to look around this room, those of you in here tonight. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. When I worked in mental health, they told us this average. One out of every four people you see has a mental health problem. So some of us in this room, we've got some issues. Okay, now think about it. Some of us in this room, we've got issues. we just got to be honest. One out of four of us in here, there's an issue going on. Maybe it's not fear, but maybe you're struggling secretly somewhere with doubt. But here's the good news. In some ways, you cannot grow unless you struggle with doubt. And that's what God wants you to do. I'm not going to put you back on the wall I lowered to the ground. I start, he says, remember where you slipped. I went up the wall a second time. I made it all the way to the top. Now, here's my point. 
God lets us come against some big problems, and we go, I don't know why. A few minutes ago, standing right over here, someone said to me that tonight they were going to be in the service, and they were going to try and throw me off my game. I said, you know what? I've spoken on a lot of college campuses. I've dealt with hecklers. I've dealt with everything. You know, give me your best shot. Here's the point. Here's the point. I'm a better communicator because of the hecklers. They gave me a gift. They gave me, I'm a better pastor because of the questions that I've had to help people wrestle with. But if we're not careful, doubts can diminish our trust in God. Doubts can diminish our trust in God. You see, what the devil did was he caused Adam and Eve to question God. And the moment we begin to question, does God really care? Does God really know where I'm at? Does God really love me? The moment we begin to question those things in our life, and we begin to question the goodness of God, the love of God, the provision of God, the providence of God in our lives, then the enemy can begin to worm his way in. The quickest way, look at me, the quickest way to destroy somebody's faith in somebody else is just to drop a question. You haven't made an accusation. You've just dropped a question about them. You know, is, we got a man in here that's a great electrician. We don't call out names online, but, you know, I wonder, did he cause that problem with that wiring? And then the person says, oh, I never accused him of it. I just asked a question. And I want to tell you something, communicators, they know that's the quickest way to cause somebody else to begin to doubt the integrity, the skill, the veracity, and the father of all evil, Lucifer himself, that's what he did to our parents. And you have to understand, they're the only human beings that were ever created without sin. You and I wrestle with it, and we struggle with it every single day. The third thing I want you to see is wrestling with doubt will lead you to a confident faith. Because you can overcome doubt with the help of the Lord. Let me give you two illustrations, and I give you the references here for them. But first of all, there's Nathaniel. Nathaniel, one of the apostles of Jesus. Philip goes and finds him, and Philip says, We found the Messiah. Nathaniel, in the course, where's he from? And he goes, You know, he's from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, just being the good Bible student, he says, Uh uh-uh, uh, uh uh, the Messiah's got to come from Bethlehem. Well, evidently, Philip didn't know he had been born in Bethlehem, and Jesus at that time was living in Nazareth, and so Nathanael was like, uh, that's not true. Jesus came to Nathanael, and when he greeted Nathanael, Nathanael's doubts vanished into spell. If you were honest with your doubts before God, if you do what I did when I was younger, you suppress those doubts, you hide those doubts, they're still going to work inside of you. But if you're honest with doubt, you do what psalmist is doing here. This is Asaph. Asaph's a godly man. This is Asaph's feelings that he's dealing with. This is not a psalm of David. This is a psalm of Asaph. He's dealing with his feelings before God. He's praying about his feelings. God will meet you. The next person was Thomas. And again, maybe we've been unfair to Thomas. Thomas made one of the greatest confessions of faith in God. After Jesus was crucified, and if you've been watching The Chosen, I've enjoyed watching the character of Thomas. But after Jesus was crucified, he hadn't seen Jesus the way the other disciples says. And he makes this bold statement. He says, unless I can put my fingers in the scars in his hands, I won't believe. You know, there's some people, that's just how they are. And Jesus again He comes to Thomas, and he says to Thomas, don't doubt any longer. He says, here, put your hands 
Look at the scars. Put your hand here. And Thomas makes this powerful confession of faith. My Lord and my God. Now here's the deal. His doubt made him a stronger Christian because he wrestled with it. You will never wrestle with your doubts alone. God will always come and help you. So how's, what's the cure? Number one, you've heard me say this a lot of times, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Doubt your doubt that somehow or another it pays not to serve God. Doubt your doubts that God doesn't heal when you see a disabled child or disabled adult. Doubt your doubts maybe when you see the suffering that's going on in this world and the world wants to tell you God's not good. How many times have I been asked that question? If God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? That's another topic for another time. But doubt your doubts. And what I'm saying is don't reject reason. Nowhere in the Bible do you find this taught to reject reason. But what we do is we hold on to our faith in God in spite of appearances. John the Baptist held on to his faith. Doesn't mean he didn't doubt. He said, are you really the one? He was in prison. He was suffering. He's going to be beheaded by Herod. And the apostles and his, his disciples, John's disciples, come to Jesus. And Jesus says, go back and tell him what they've seen, what he's done. John dies a martyr's death. And Jesus says, there's none greater. Now, here's what you need to know. Yesterday, I buried a godly woman from this congregation. The godly woman. I've been her pastor for 22 years. We've laughed together. We've prayed together. We've enjoyed life as the body of Christ here. I wept with her husband. But here's the deal you need to know tonight. She closed her eyes, but immediately opened them up in the presence of Christ. And despite all appearances, that body may be dead, but she's alive in Christ. We hold on to our faith despite appearance. It's, it's not doubting reason. Her body, we put it in the grave yesterday. But there is a time coming, according to 1 Corinthians 15, where God mocks death. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. There will be a resurrection of the body. I can't wait for that day. So despite appearances, I still believe. I think sometimes the time you really have to deal with this is when you're sick. Because when you're sick and your body is weakened, your body, soul, and spirit, they affect all three. When you're sick, then you can begin to doubt the healing power of God. Two stories, real quick. One was a doctor that told me he didn't believe and then came in and sat by my bedside in the hospital at night and we had a long talk, long talk. It seemed to me like it was a long time anyway. Had a long talk about faith. And he opened up his heart and says, I want to believe. And another doctor then that said to me, God doesn't do miracles. God doesn't heal. And yet he said to me, almost scolding me, you know, I don't think you understand what a miracle God has done in your life. You see, sometimes God allows us to go through things so that other people are reached for the gospel. And we always have to remember, we are not authoritarian Christians. We are servants of Jesus Christ. We want God to use us in whatever way he sees best. So how do you, what's the second way you whip it? Gather with God's people for worship. That's the reason I'm asking you to come back to church. 
I know some of you have gotten comfortable sitting on a pew or sitting on your sofa. Some of you have gotten comfortable maybe not coming to church. And I've had numbers of, oh, I enjoy it so much online. Somebody even prayed yesterday uh, talking with me, says, it's just a good thing when we need to, to be able, when you need to, to be able to stay home and worship. But we need to gather as the church and worship together. That's not me trying to increase attendance. My, my, my self-esteem doesn't depend on how many people are here. My success doesn't depend on how many people are here. It's what's good for us as the body of Christ. It's what's good for you. It's what's good for me. Look at what David says, excuse me, Asaph says here. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. What's he saying? I was envying them. And then I gathered in the sanctuary. I saw the sacrifices. I knew what the sacrifices were being made. I understood, oh God, what you're doing in this world and that sin is a problem. I understood the end of the wicked and I saw the end for the righteous. Friends, when we gather together, God gives us understanding together. We need to sing the songs of faith together. We need to pray together. We need to come together for the prayer and the anointing of oil for the sick. We need to come together to pray for each other. But most of all, we need the word of the Lord together. Thirdly, this is how God conquers, is you compare the paths of doubt and you compare the paths of faith. Compare the two paths. Truly, the Bible says, you put them on a slippery path and you sent them sliding over the cliff to destruction. Now, understand, he's not being cocky. He's been honest. He says, Lord, my faith is shaky right now. It's shaky because I've been envious. He says, but now I understand. Remember Mesa Verde, if you didn't know the way, you slipped and fell. Remember if I hadn't been belayed, I wouldn't be sitting here preaching tonight off that rock wall. They're swept away. Now let me help you, especially if you're watching tonight, you're not a Christian, and if you tonight ever talk to people that aren't Christians and they ask you this question I've been asked many times, and I'm just always honest. I can't prove there's a God. That's, I can't do that. I can point you to the universe and say, there's an intelligent designer by, behind it, but you can choose to disbelieve that. But I can't prove. And did you know that what, not one time in the Bible does God ever try to prove his existence? You can't find one single place where God tries to prove that he exists. He just says, I am. I am that I am. So I can point to things that help me believe there's an intelligent designer in the universe. I can point to fulfilled prophecies, many of them about Christ. There are all kinds of things I can point to to help you believe. But if you're really going to struggle honestly, with, now listen to me, especially my friend that's not a Christian. Listen to me. You can't prove there's not a God. And you're going to have to choose Either there's a God or there's not a God. If there is a God, he loves you. If there is a God, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. If there is a God, you and I will stand before him one day and have to give an accounting of our lives. If there is a God, there is right and wrong in the universe. But if there is no God, the appalling thing and the horrifying thing is that maybe you have to re-examine why you live your life the way you do. 
You shudder when you watch a lion take down an animal and eat it while it's still living. And you hear the pitiful cries of either that, that antelope or that pitiful cry of that poor little animal that the lion is consuming. Then the law of evolution is right. The strong eat the weak. Then there should be no legislation about an investment bank that buys a drug that's sold for less than $10 and then jacks the price of that drug up to over $800, all because they can, and it's legal. So people died because the investment banker says, hey, if you can't afford it, you can't have it. And then when it was exposed, and everybody then all of a sudden wanted to decry it, but that happens all the time. The investment bankers, are, they're not morally wrong if there's not a God, and the strong eat the weak. So you've got an appalling decision to make. Or you can just simply be blind and go, I can't make up my mind. And then you roll the dice. Friends, if I die tonight and there is no God, I've lost nothing. I've gained everything by living according to the way that Christ called me to live. But in my heart of hearts, I know that I know that I know that God sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's the reason suicide never crosses my mind. It's the reason that taking my life never crosses my mind. You've got to live one way or the other. And then finally, what God says is let me hold you. Let me hold you. Let God hold you. You see, when you're struggling with doubt, it doesn't mean that God's displeased with you. I envied. And then in verse 23, he says, Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. Isn't that beautiful? You hold my right hand. Do you know why? Look at me. Listen carefully. All of you in here tonight, listen, this is important. This will bring more mental health healing to you than you can imagine. Do you know why God holds you with his right hand? Because he chose to let go of his son at Calvary. That's why God holds you. You see, God, sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. And when Jesus cried out those horrible words from Calvary, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook Christ upon that cross as our sins were placed upon him. I entered into the sanctuary, then I understood. All of those sacrifices pointed to Christ. I entered the sanctuary, then I understood. God let go of Jesus so he could hold on to you. And then on the third day, God raised him again, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day soon and very soon, we're going to have to go, and we're going to meet him. Let me close tonight with a thought from... Brother Lawrence, in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, I've recommended this book so many times. When we are in doubt, God will never fail to give light when we have no other plan than to please him and to act in love for him. Let me pray for you tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I thank you so much. Lord, there is no sin in struggling with doubt, but there is always victory over every doubt that we face, Lord, if we will simply be honest 
and not repress them and not just vent them, Lord, to get something off our chest, but to come to you and to pray our doubts back to you. And God, would you touch Woodland Church and make us always a church that welcomes people who are wrestling with doubt. And may we be the kind of people, Lord, that will be there to help them, to belay them when they fall off the wall. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. I love you so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to email me. You can contact me at the uh, email address that's right there on the screen tonight. We're going to go offline, and we're going to have a discussion here. And uh, maybe if you've got a question or something, you can text it to me, and I'll try and reply to it as well. God bless you. Good night.